0: Me and Ricky, thank you very much for that ministry of music. Thank you to each one who participated in our service this morning. Holy is the Lord, and we are told, Be ye holy, for I am holy. How that holiness is to manifest itself is one of the age long questions that the church struggles with. In particular, What is our relationship to be to the world? How are we to be in the world, but yet not of the world? How are we to be missional, taking our gospel message and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world at the same time remaining separate in our beliefs and practices? This morning, as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we have an extremely practical section in the book of 2 Corinthians. It deals with Paul's desire that the Corinthians reevaluate their relationship to non believers, that the Corinthians would reevaluate their relationship to non believers. And the particular theme this morning is that they were not to enter into binding commitments with unbelievers. They were not to enter into binding commitments with unbelievers. The prohibition generally stated is this. Do not form any relationships, even temporary, but especially permanent, with unbelievers that would lead one to compromise Christian standards or jeopardize the freedom for Christian witness. Now, I know that's going to create some issues and some areas of concern. So, we want to unpack this passage and we want to do so in a very, very practical way. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 6, we get for us the theme verse, do not be bound together with unbelievers. That is the main thought of this particular section of Corinthians. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. So we begin by looking at the prohibition explained. What does it mean that the believer is not to enter into uh, close relationships with non-believers? If you look at verse 14, we have a metaphor. That metaphor is not translated in the NAS, but it is in the NIV and King James. And that is, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the NAS gives us the the thought, do not be bound together with unbelievers. But I, I believe that metaphor is extremely helpful to us Uh, We are in an uh, agricultural setting in society. I hope you know what a yoke is. But if you think about a yoke in the New Testament era, it would have been a harness (laughs) made out of wood. And there would be two large circles, if you would, to be hollowed out and placed over the shoulders of a beast of burden. Uh, Whether that be an oxen or a mule, or some, as I say, beast that could pull, a horse. And there would be a matched team that would often work together. And that's the imagery here, a yoke. So there would be two circles, a collar, if you will, to be placed over the head and against the shoulders of the one animal, and then a collar placed over the head against the shoulders of the second animal with another piece of, of wood that would be holding these two collars together. And it provided an apparatus for the animal to pull against. They could lean into the yoke and then they would be harnessed to some plow or other instrument behind them that they were pulling. But they would walk in tandem, pulling together against the plow. Well, the better matched set... The more useful they are going to be in the production of work, the less well matched, the less work that's going to get done. If the animals were totally mismatched, they couldn't even pull effectively. They wouldn't get anything done. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22:10 states, "You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together." You're not supposed to match an ox or a donkey together. And maybe you have gone to the horse pulls that are at uh, the fair. And uh, you've seen matched sets of draft horses that are pulling together. The thought of this passage is that we are not to be matched with unbelievers. We are not to be yoked together. We are not to be bound together together. We are not to be doing the Lord's work together with non-believers. And the obvious question is, why not? Why not? Why not engage non-believers in the work of the Lord? Maybe that would be a way to reach them. Maybe that would be a way to involve them. Maybe that would be a way to create some interest or concern. Or maybe they could lend something Such as financial assistance. Why not involve non-believers in the work of the Lord in a binding way? There are three answers that are given in our text. The first is that we need to uh, separate. We need to separate from non-believers. Because we have nothing in common with non-believers. If you look at verse 14, there are five rhetorical questions that are raised. Five rhetorical questions. And the answer to each of these questions is none or nothing. Look at verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Why? Number one, for what partnership has righteousness And lawlessness, King James says wickedness, lawlessness is a good translation. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Answer, none. Secondly, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Answer, none. Or thirdly, what harmony has Christ with Belial, which is another name for Satan? Answer, none. Or, what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Answer, nothing. Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Answer, none. None. All of these things is to say there is nothing in common here. Now, we could look at all of those comparisons in much greater detail, but But I'm not going to go beyond that this morning because I'm going to spend an unnormally or uncharacteristic amount of time in application this morning because I think we can get to the the bare bones of this pretty pretty easily. And that is, there is nothing in common between believers and non-believers. We live by different standards. We have a different moral compass. We have a different basis in making decisions. As believers, we are committed to the Word of God and living out the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have different aspirations, different desires, different goals. We want to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Non-believers are looking to please themselves or, or others, but certainly not Christ. And those differences are going to prove to be extremely significant Over time. To the place wherein that ultimately the work is going to be hindered and in some cases the work not even able to get done. So, don't be in a partnership with non-believers because we have nothing in common. Secondly, why do we need to separate from non-believers? Answer? Answer? Because that is what God told us to do. That's what God wants of us. One of the great questions about godliness is what do we find to be pleasing to Him? And in this passage, we find out that God wants us to be separate from non-believers. The emphasis in verses 16 to 18 is the Word of God. God has repeatedly told us that we need to be separate From the world. Look at verse 16. Or what judgment has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, these words, just as God said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. Now, these words, says the Lord. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So verse 16, just as God said. Verse 17, says the Lord. Verse 18, says the Lord Almighty. There are in these few verses six different Old Testament references to prove that it is in fact what God has said that we are to be separate from the non-believers. It certainly would be of value to go back and look at each one of those Old Testament citations in context and look at what the Word of God has to say in those particular contexts. But again, I'm not going to do that this morning. The point is that God has repeatedly and consistently warned in the Old Testament and now the New Testament to be separate from non-believers. Thirdly, why do we need to be separate from non-believers? Answer, because God has made a distinction in blessing us and we don't want to miss out on those blessings. God has made a distinction between believers and non-believers. And there are blessings that are ours as believers that non-believers do not enjoy. And we need to be careful that we don't miss out on those blessings as a result of being unified or entering into a relationship that God does not allow with non-believers. Notice 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have these promises. The promises are given to us in verses 16 and following. There are four unique promises That are given to God's people. That are given to believers. Notice verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as a result of this unique relationship of the Holy Spirit in dwelling us as believers... There are four promises, benefits, that are ours in the unique relationship that we enjoy to God. Notice them with me. Verse 16. First, I will dwell with them and walk among them. That God's presence in leading and directing and sustaining is going to be uniquely manifest among His people. I will dwell in them and walk among them. Secondly, I will be their God and they shall be My people. There is a unique covenantal relationship. God has promised to be our God and we are to be His people. His allegiance is to us and our allegiance is to be to Him. His allegiance is not to a non-believing world. Jesus even went so far as to say, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. I pray for those that thou hast given me out of the world. There is a unique relationship that God has established with us. And in turn, there is a unique relationship that we are to have to God. He to be our God. The non-believers do not have God as Their God. Verse 18. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. Notice again the mutual relationship. I will be your father. This is the unique relationship I'm going to enjoy to you. I will make you a part of my family. I will be your father. And in turn, you are to be my sons and you are to be my daughters. That is not the relationship that exists between God and nonbelievers. He is not their God in a father, in a salvific way, and they are not his children. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, uh, Having these promises, excuse me, I skipped over verse 17. Uh, Come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And now this promise, and I will welcome you. I will welcome you. I will receive you. I will enter into a relationship with you that's then described in verse 18 as being a father to you. And you will be sons and daughters to me. The believer belongs exclusively to God. Our allegiance is to be to Him. And we must not make allegiances with others that would bring us into conflict with our allegiance to God. We have a primary responsibility of serving Him and accomplishing His will. And we should distance ourselves from everything that would hinder or negate our ability to do His will and to please Him. That's the framework. What I want to do now is slow down and think with you about the application of this particular portion of God's Word. What kind of relationships are in view? How is this separation from non-believers to be practiced? What is it to look like? One of the most difficult Areas to gain a proper balance or perspective on in the scriptures is the teaching about separation. In one sense, as believers, we are to be intimately involved with the life of non believers. There is an emphasis in the church today, in some circles, on what is known as missional theology. I personally think it's a good and healthy emphasis The emphasis of not an attraction model of trying to get people to come to the church and be involved in the church, but that we go out and reach our community. We reach the people of our society. I think that is healthy. I think that is what the Scripture teaches us to do. In another sense, believers are to separate themselves from non-believers. Down through the ages, the way that this balance has been sought to be maintained has taken some unique turns. There was, in the time of medieval Christianity, an emphasis on monasteries, monastic orders. People would be totally separate from the world. They would be cloistered. And they would live in cells with big walls and they would have nothing to do with the unsaved world around them. They would just shut themselves off. They would distance themselves. Now, there aren't many monasteries and cloisters today. There are some But it certainly isn't the normative understanding of what the Christian experience is. But yet, there are many tendencies on the part of some and uh, in evangelicalism, fundamentalism, to try to live very isolated, very separated lives in which virtually no contact is entered into with non-believers. The call to separation and holiness is not a call to isolationism. The call to separation is not a call to monasticism or cloisterism. Jesus' words on this matter are very informative and very instructive. Jesus said in John 17, 15, I pray not that you would take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil or the evil one. He didn't want to remove us from the world, but he wanted us to be preserved or kept from the evil of this world. Jesus went so far in John 17:18 to say, As thou didst send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Just as it was God's purpose for the Son of God to actually be born, and to enter this world and to live the 33 years of his earthly existence in this world, he says, it is my purpose for my disciples to be in the world. Christ has called us to be salt and light in the world. We are to be a permeating influence for God. We are not to have or model a pharisaical view of the Christian life. If you remember, the Pharisees found fault with Jesus because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He associated himself with those that the Pharisees thought he should distance himself from. He was not sinning. He was not violating the will of God. He was not thwarting God's purpose. He was doing that which brought delight to the Lord. I say these things because it is the history of our church to be pretty separatistic and to tend to be isolationist. I'm concerned with a sermon like this because it it stokes those fires. But with all those caveats, we can't depart from what this text says either. There needs to be a balance and we need to be careful in our desire to be missional in our desire to reach others in our desires to be an influence on in our society as a desire to incarnate the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we don't violate what is this clear command in the scriptures of not being unequally yoked together. God has called us to be separate from the world. So again, how is this to be manifested? What is it to look like? First, as a believer, we need to give great consideration to the attachments, affiliations, or relationships that we enter into with non-believers. Let me say that again. As a believer, we need to give great consideration to the attachments, affiliations, and relationships that we enter into with non-believers. In verse 14, the instruction is that we're not enter into a binding relationship with a non-believer. Do not be bound together. Do not be yoked together. There has been one traditional application to this passage and that is that it would certainly address the issue of marriage. That it is inappropriate for a believer to marry a non-believer. What do they have in common? How are they together going to accomplish God's purpose and desire for marriage? So, do not marry. A non-believer would certainly be a very appropriate application to this passage. Another would be business relationships, a partnership, a business venture in which you are together going about to do a particular work. You are going to find yourselves at odds with your business partner. Different standards, different directions, uh, different desires, different goals. So we need to be careful entering into business contracts with people who are non-believers. Thirdly, religious organizations must be very careful that they do not enter into partnerships with non-religious organizations in order to obtain a common goal. There are certain desires that would be present within religious circles that would be true of believers and non-believers. For example, a desire to reach, uh, to uh, feed the poor. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. We want to be feeding the poor. We want to uh, be demonstrating the love of of Christ. There is a social aspect to the gospel that we need to be involved in. But we need to be careful in who we affiliate with in order to achieve that end or that purpose. Because it's not our sole end. It's not our sole purpose. There are other things that we need to be aware of. We need to realize the unique temptation that comes through parachurch organizations. The church is supported by tithes and offerings. The church is supported by God's people. Parent church organizations have a real dilemma and that is how do they raise funds? Because they're not a church. They don't have a congregation. And the answer is that usually is done by seeking to raise money among Christians, but certainly not limited to Christians and sometimes there are, there are other uh, entities, uh, groups that are sympathetic to what that parachurch organization is doing and it will take monies from that, those entities and will ultimately prove to water things down to create hardships to create difficulties. So, we need to look carefully, whether we're an organization, whether we're an individual at the relationships that we're going to enter into. Especially binding relationships. secondly, I am already in that relationship. What should I do? When you are in such a relationship, what do you do? First, I would say seek to get out of it. Seek to get out of it when you can. Meaning, when it is morally appropriate to do so. Not necessarily easy to do so. It may be costly to get out of it, but you may be able to get out of it in an appropriate or moral fashion and way. If you're dating, that's easy to get out of. You just break up with a person. I say easy. It it might be emotionally uh, traumatic. It might be uh, going against what your inner desires are, but we know that a dating relationship can be broken. If you're engaged to a non believer and you're a believer, you should call the engagement off. Again, it's within your power to do so. There's nothing immoral about that. Uh, There's nothing inappropriate about that. In fact, it's the right thing to do. Don't marry a non believer if you're a believer. Well, you may say, I'm a believer and I am married to a believer what do I do? a business partnership maybe you're talking about entering into a business relationship with someone else don't maybe you're going to take on a professional partnership maybe four of you are going to be lawyers or, or doctors Or don't do it don't do it but you say but it's too late I already have what do I do? Well, there are some relationships with non-believers that we have a moral responsibility to continue in. One such relationship is the marital relationship. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's writing these very same Corinthians. And he says this. First Corinthians 7.10 The believer is not to divorce the non-believing spouse. Let me say that again. The believer is not to divorce the non-believing spouse. One might read 2 Corinthians and think that that means, well then, if I'm a believer and I'm united with this non-believer, I need to divorce that non-believer. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.10. But to the married I give instruction, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. Verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. Now, when Paul says in verse 12, To the rest I say, not the Lord, he is not making a distinction between that which is inspired or uninspired, or that which is authoritative, or that which is unauthoritative. Rather, he's simply saying that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, taught that a person should not divorce. And if they do divorce, they should remain unmarried. Now, Paul's going to address an issue that Jesus never addressed in his earthly ministry. It didn't come up. Verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord,
1: that if any brother,
0: that's a Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. Don't divorce. Verse 13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. Don't divorce. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Now, when it says they are sanctified, it doesn't mean that they are saved. But it means that they are brought into a unique relationship to God. That a believer who is married to a non-believer, those children have unique benefits. They have a a parent that's praying for them. They have a parent that's modeling the faith for them. They have a parent who is, is seeking to establish a covenantal relationship with God and their children. Bottom line, if you are a believer and you're married to a non-believer, don't divorce. That's not the way to fulfill the command of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 through Second Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. In like manner. You are a partner. You signed a contract. You have given your word. Don't go back on your contract. Don't negate that which you have committed to. Hang in there. Now, having said that, in a business relationship, there may be appropriate ways out. Look for ways out that would be appropriate, that would be moral. So, for example, in a partnership, Maybe you could buy your partner out and take over the entire business. Maybe you are in no position to buy your partner out. Maybe you could sell your part in the business. Now here, you see, you get into another touchy area. Just like the person who's dating has desires and emotions in which they don't want to divest themselves, and even more so the person who's engaged. They don't want to break up with this person that they are wanting to marry. They love them. Well, in business relationships, it may cost you financially pretty dearly. You may have to sell your part of the the business at a loss. You see, but the question is, how seriously... Are we going to take this teaching of the Word of God that we're not to enter into permanent permanent binding relationships with nonbelievers? So, what do we do if we are in a binding relationship with a non believer that cannot be broken? That would be morally inappropriate for us to break. What do we do in that instance? I would say these things. First, confess the sin that led to the establishment of that relationship. Why did it happen? A marriage. It could be because two non-believers were married. And then, one of them comes to faith. And the other does not. That's pretty understandable. That's pretty much a a situation in which the person's not really at fault. But they're to continue in that relationship. But that's not the case with every situation where a believer is married to a non-believer. Maybe that believer was in a rebellious state in their lives when they got married. Maybe they were spiritually apathetic. They didn't care much about really serving the Lord and pleasing the Lord. Uh, A lot of very, very important decisions are made at times when we are naive or wandering in our relationship to the Lord. Influenced by a lot of other people. And so maybe they were rebellious. Maybe you were ignorant. Maybe you had a lack of faith and said, you know, if I don't marry this person, nobody will marry me. Or if I don't take advantage of this particular business opportunity, then I'm always going to be poor. It's easy to look at and be able to formulate in our minds reasons why this should be an exception to the rule. Of why it's okay for me in this instance. Well, if we're in that situation, I think we should confess the sin that led to it. Acknowledge it. And ask the Lord for forgiveness. Whether it be the lack of faith. Whether it be the rebelliousness. Or maybe it be ignorance. Or a situation, again, that happened before you were even saved. And now you have little control over it. Understand the reason for it. Secondly, seek to be the godly influence in that relationship. Seek to be the godly influence. Seek to be the leader. Seek to influence as far as you are able the decisions that are made that they would be in keeping with God's word. You know, the scripture says that uh, in Psalm 1 we are not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, Be careful who you are seeking advice from. The lawyer you go to. The financial planner you go to. The people that are making decisions for you. That bear on your future. And have a tremendous impact on the direction of where your life is going. And the goals that you are setting. Be sure that you have a Christian that is influencing those values and those standards, and those desires. Think long and hard about where you're going for advice and counsel on life's important issues. So back to this situation. Seek to be the person who's giving that advice. Seek to be the person who's giving that counsel. Try to live by godly standards. As far as you are able. And you're going to find some contradicting values and standards as a result. It's not going to be easy to, f- to wind your way through the Word of God if you are bound together with a non-believer. There are a lot of hard and difficult decisions. For example, one that I have encountered more than once <coughs> Where a wife will come to me and she's a believer, her husband is not. They look at their finances and he can't understand why in the world that she'd want to give tithes to the church. I believe in that situation that she shouldn't give tithes to the church. She should be submissive to her husband. I think there's a lot of Old Testament examples I can go to that say he bears the responsibility then. He bears the the, uh, requirement. But there are a lot of questions that you're going to have to work through if you're in that dilemma of how do I balance my commitment to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ and my commitment to this other person. And marriage really compounds that. Secondly, seek the salvation of the person you are in partnership with. Pray for that person. Witness to that person. Love that person. Long that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But don't enter a relationship with the hope of saving that person. If you're in that relationship, seek for the salvation of that person. If you're not in that relationship, still seek for their salvation. But don't think that you are going to enter into the relationship and then they are going to get saved. Again, marriage. We certainly know people who have married as believers, non-believers, and the spouse comes to know the Lord. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God. But we should never presume upon God's grace and God's goodness. We shouldn't expect that to happen. And we shouldn't justify that as a way. Marriage is not to be an evangelistic tool. Partnerships are not to be an evangelistic tool. We need to practice separation from a non-believing world. Be careful of these binding relationships. I hope that we can enter into and get a sense of that balance. But You see this passage is talking about binding permanent relationships that are going to cause you to have conflict in upholding a Christian standard and a Christian witness. God has something different For you. And if you are tied in some way to a non-believer, it's going to hold you back from being and doing what God wants you to do and be. Let's pray. Our Father, help us uh, to do that which is pleasing in your sight. I pray that you would grant us wisdom and restraint that, first of all, we would not enter into relationships that we shouldn't. Lord, may we not minimize how different Christians and non-Christians are in their standards and their thinking and their aspirations. Lord, help us to realize it really does matter where we get our advice or our counsel. So may we seek godly advice and may, as your word says, we not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Lord, uh, grant our young people restraint as they look for a marriage partner. Lord, help them to only desire to marry those that indeed know you and walk with you. Lord, uh, for our partnerships, for our businesses, for our livelihoods, things that are very dear and precious to us, Lord, help us not to allow a desire for wealth or prominence or security or some other manifestation of trust, to supersede our trust in you, and our allegiance to you. Lord, guard us from the relationships that we enter into. And Lord, where we have failed and entered into these relationships, give us grace. First, grace to endure. For, yes, there are consequences. There are unpleasant situations we're going to find ourselves in. We're going to hate to go to work. There's going to be things about our marriage we don't like. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be struggle. Oh God, give us a spirit that of perseverance. And realize this is a new way now that we serve you. In submitting ourselves to your will. And not compounding sin upon sin. Lord, help us to abide in the situation that we are in. Under your authority. And under your blessing. Lord, help us to seek the salvation of that one that we are bound to. Help us to try to influence them. Help us, Lord, to try to encourage them. And Lord, help us to minimize the consequences that we're going to experience. Lord, give us wisdom as we live our daily lives that we do that which is pleasing in your sight. And to be Most helpful for the kingdom's sake. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.